Dear Heavenly Father, it's always on our hearts to thank you first for all that you've done and are doing for us, for the world you've given us and all that we have in it, and for the opportunities, Father, to know you truly through your, uh, through your Son, our Lord, and then uh, in having come to know him, the opportunities to serve and to bring others into the light, Father. Thank you, Lord, for John's gospel, for the remarkable things he revealed, Father, through the time and and uh, opportunity you have with Jesus himself, and then as well the revelation you gave him afterward. Father, it's an amazing thing that you could use one man in such a remarkable way. But thank you, Father, that you did so, and thank you that the word is still before us today, thousands of years later, so that we might learn from it. Uh, As always, Father, we want our hearts prepared, for we know it is only by the power of the Spirit that we can understand any of these things. A teacher, Father, is just an instrument, and an instrument that you wield, and I pray, Father, you would do that this this evening for us, for our sake, that you would speak and your words would reign, not mine, and that the truth would be self-evident in your word so that we might all take it seriously, considering what it asks of us and perhaps changing as we need to to conform to it. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. John's explaining the relationship between John the Baptist and Christ, using John's own words in this chapter. And he's doing it to reinforce that John the Baptist was just a man. He was a man called to be a prophet in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. John the writer is preparing us to see the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry as it transitions from John's ministry as a prophet to Jesus' ministry in fulfillment of what the prophets declared. We also noted last week that chapter 1 and into chapter 2, reflects a series of events that all transpired in the course of only seven days. This is the first week of Jesus's earthly ministry. In last week's study, we saw John the Baptist being interrogated on one of those days by men who had come up to question him as to what his ministry was all about. Scribes, priests, men of the Levites, we're told. And in that exchange, he says, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. And in fact, I'm not even Elijah. And now we're going to move, as we pick up today in verse 29, into the second day of this week when the Messiah himself arrives and meets John. Verse 29, we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. So this is day two. And this day begins with John in his usual place, that is, baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan, we were told. And as John goes about his work of baptizing, he looks up, as we see on this day, and he sees Jesus approaching. And this, John declares, as he looks at Jesus, is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, which is a phrase we have all heard, I know. John makes this declaration to who? Well, presumably to those who were there with him in the moment, which would mean those who had come up that day to be baptized by him in the Jordan and perhaps the rest of John's disciples who were there with him waiting for the appearing of the Messiah. For after all, that's why they had gone to John in the first place, for they believed in his call that the Messiah was coming. But then I want you to notice in verses 30 
and 31, John begins to speak in the past tense as he relates his experience. This is not the first time he's seen Jesus at the water. This is not the day he baptizes Jesus. John baptized Jesus earlier than this. On this second day, Jesus approaches John at the waterside. As he walks toward him, John testifies, this is the one I've been telling you about. This is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one I saw the dove come down on. This is the one that had the Holy Spirit descend upon him. And I knew he was the one because I was told to look for that sign. And when I saw the sign, I knew it. Now, I didn't recognize him before that, but now I know him. And that's why I can tell you right now, this one is the Son of God. The scene in which John himself actually baptized Jesus is not recorded in John's gospel. We said that last week. We can just get a sense of it, though, by going into one of the synoptics to Mark, for example. Briefly in Mark, Mark 1, verses 4 through 11, Mark writes, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. So all four gospel writers describe this moment, this moment when Jesus came to John to be baptized. But John speaks of it in the past tense through the words of John the Baptist, relaying what he had done. In a prior moment. And as John describes it, as Jesus comes up out of the water, a theophany appeared. Theophany is a fancy word for a manifestation of God in some kind of physical form. We're not saying that God was the dove. We're saying God used the image of a dove to communicate his presence to man. So we call that a theophany. The Holy Spirit, in this case, being manifested as a dove that descended from the heavens. And when we say heavens, we don't mean the heavenly throne room of God. We use it in the sense of how Jews describe the sky and the clouds, the heavens. So it's coming out of the clouds, in other words. And it descended down upon Jesus. And in conjunction with that arrival, the Lord speaks words from those same heavens, as you heard Mark record. Now, in John's gospel, coming back to where we are, we come to understand why Jesus needed to be baptized by John. But we're also going to come to understand the relationship between water baptism and the Holy Spirit. All of that is being given to us in John's gospel, though we have to take a moment to see it. First, Jesus received the Holy Spirit at this moment. He received it in order to enable him to serve in his earthly ministry. The gospel tells us that Jesus's ability to perform the miracles that he performed in his earthly ministry was an ability made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. That's why when some saw that power displayed and declared that it was not truly the work of God, but of the enemy of Beelzebub, they committed the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They were denying the power of the spirit as it had been manifested in Jesus, the man. When Jesus became a man, when he was born of flesh in, through Mary, he willingly was lowering himself, the scriptures tell us, and setting aside his power to act in supernatural ways. He was not superhuman. He was not a superhero. He couldn't stop bullets with his skin. This is a man who is no different than you and I in the sense of what it meant to become man. He was truly a man. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could accomplish great miracles. 
And the arrival of the spirit in this moment was the moment that Jesus transitioned from being just the carpenter's son to becoming the rabbi and the Messiah. Now, he was never less who he was. He was never less God in that sense. He never sinned, in other words. But when he did become man, it was not merely that he took on a different form and yet retained all of what it meant to be God seated at the right hand of the father. No, he lowered himself, Paul says, and made himself something less than he was previously. And in lessening himself, what he lessened was his power, not his authority, but his power. And that power had to be regained through the work of the Holy Spirit in him. So the arrival of the Holy Spirit was the moment for his earthly ministry to begin. Secondly, Jesus comes to John to receive the spirit, not because John was the means by which God delivered the spirit to his son, but because John was the man anointed by God to identify the Messiah to the world. That was John's ministry. Those who were ready and waiting for the Messiah in John's day still needed someone to point out to them who the Messiah was. In that day, there was no advanced pictures. No one sent any text or emails. He didn't have a stamp on his forehead. There was no way you would know who the true Messiah was, given that God's method of delivering the Messiah was in a form that was not an attractive form, we're told in Isaiah. There's nothing about him that screamed, I am the Messiah. So God gave a man to us, John, whose ministry it was to call attention to Jesus. And more than that, to name him as the Messiah. Jesus came to be baptized so that John's ministry could be made complete that he could serve his purpose. And as you see in John's gospel, he does that in saying, this is the one that I've been telling you about. Finally, water baptism was a part of what Jesus experienced in that moment so that God could create a picture for us of spirit baptism. As when he instituted the Last Supper, the communion meal, Jesus is blazing a path here for future believers in the church to follow in later years. Like our Lord, every believer receives an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the very same thing that the Spirit did for Jesus is happening still today for believers in the world. Not that the Spirit will necessarily grant to us all the same miraculous powers. That's self-evidently not God's purpose. But that doesn't lessen the reality of the Spirit in our life, nor does it lessen the potential for what can be done through the Spirit in our life. So we all follow in Jesus' footsteps as believers in receiving that indwelling of the Spirit. But we don't get the dove. We know the spirit is not in the habit of descending that way on every believer in their moment of faith. But every believer can and should submit to water baptism, just as Jesus did, just as he commanded that we do. And in doing so, we achieve a picture of that indwelling. Our own water baptism is the picture of the spirit baptism that came upon us in our moment of faith. And Jesus' baptism involved both water and a dove to make sure we would make the connection in our own experience. We understand that when we are doing what he did, we're receiving what he received. Not because in his case he needed to be cleansed by water of sin. That's not the picture. That's never been the picture of baptism. That's actually a false understanding of the picture of baptism. The right picture of baptism is that you are receiving an indwelling, a saturation, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. And that by going into the water, you die with Christ. And by coming up out of the water, you're being resurrected into new life through your faith. And all of that being made possible by the Spirit. So a believer receives the Holy Spirit at the moment we come to faith. And at some later point, we submit to water baptism to picture the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we received at the moment of faith. Notice in verse 31, going back a second, John says, I didn't know who the Messiah was going to be before I baptized him. That is such a curious and striking detail when you think about it. We know that Jesus and John, John the Baptist, were cousins. 
They were earthly cousins. Their mothers were related, Elizabeth and Mary. And we know they were only born six months apart. And in fact, we know Mary and Elizabeth met together and spent time together while they were both pregnant. So perhaps you would expect those families to be pretty close. You would have thought that somewhere along the line in the 30 odd years since that's happened, that they might have had some family reunions or barbecues or something. And there would have been some discussion. How's the Messiah going? Oh, he's doing pretty good. You know, he's what kind of conversation would you expect? Right. Yet John says he had no idea his cousin was the Messiah. He didn't realize that until he witnesses the dove and gets the confirmation. That's important to understand because the four gospel writers record only two people as having witnessed the theophany of the dove. You may have assumed the whole crowd saw it, but that's not what the writers tell us. Between the four writers, we learn that only Jesus and John himself saw the dove and heard the words of God spoken from the heavens. No one else who was present saw those theophanies. Proof again that it's a theophany, not an actual physical thing happening. So only John and Jesus witnessed what God made available. So for anyone else who happened to be present in that moment, Jesus' water baptism just looked like any other person who came out to get baptized by John on that day. The theophany was for the benefit of John and perhaps also for Christ. For Jesus, should it confirm to him that the Father was bringing the spirit that was promised to him such that now he had a confirmation of his own that his own earthly ministry was to begin. And for John, it's the sign that he had been waiting for to know that Jesus was Messiah. And then that makes more sense because now you understand why John was so adamant about testifying to everyone about who the Messiah was. You would think if that theophany had been a publicly witnessed event, you wouldn't need John telling everyone. The whole countryside would have been talking about the event. But John is still doing what he was called to do. He had to tell everyone what he had heard from God, what he had seen from God, so that he can convince them of what was true. That's exactly what God does in general. With revelation, God appoints typically one man, a prophet here and there at times in Israel's past in the Old Testament, a man with supernatural revelation from God. And then that man has the job to go to the rest of the world and testify to the truth of what God has revealed to him. And of course, that means most people reject him. But those who are appointed believe. And John said Jesus was the Messiah. And those who would accept that word began to follow him from the first day of his ministry based on John's testimony. That's John the writer's point. In the gospel in chapter one here, it was that John the Baptist's testimony was that Jesus is the son of God. That if you have any credence, give any credence to John the Baptist as a prophet, then you should take his word. And his word was that he saw what he saw to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Based on John's uncertainty of who the Messiah would be, based on the fact that John could live 30 years and not know who the Lord is, we must conclude that his true identity was completely unknown prior to him coming to this moment in baptism, because we know, first of all, Jesus's earthly mother and father knew of his spiritual destiny because the angel told them that before he was born. And they would have probably carried that knowledge forward, I'm sure, as they raised him. But by that same token, it doesn't seem anybody else knew that fact. No one else knew that truth. Jesus's own earthly brothers had no regard for him when he was living in the home with them. They didn't believe in him. They, they mocked him. So if John the Baptist was in the dark about the man he was called to announce, his own cousin, then certainly it was a secret to everyone else. That fact reinforces for us the true humanity of Christ. He lived an absolutely normal human life because he was fully human. And as we said, he's not superhuman. But more than that, he wasn't Clark Kent. He wasn't the guy that stops bullets even when he isn't dressed in tights. People make jokes. Did he levitate the table when he was two years old? Did he walk on water when he was in the bathtub? We forget that calling him man means what it means. 
He was fully human, though he was always divine. But his divine nature didn't trump his humanity in the way that it somehow made him superhuman. He was living as a man. And based on the fact that no one had any suspicions he was the Messiah, in fact, when some people suggested he was the Messiah, as we'll see later, they can't believe anything good comes from Nazareth. There's just no reason to suspect him, which means he must have just lived an ordinary life and no one knew that they were next door to the creator. Jesus was sinless. Let's be clear on that. We know Jesus never sinned. So even as a child growing up, he was sinless. But apparently, a person can live sinlessly without drawing too much attention to himself. I know the feeling. But it is a joke. By the way, this fact would also explain why the Gospels contain so little detail of Jesus' early years. Why record the details of an otherwise ordinary, mundane human life? It's certainly not pertinent to the purpose of the Gospel and... That would seem to make sense. Finally, I want you to take note that Jesus' earthly ministry begins immediately after he's baptized. This whole week is the start of ministry for Jesus. So he gets up out of the water and he goes to work. Now, we've already said that when he received baptism, we've already said that was a moment in which he's being equipped for earthly ministry through the power of the Spirit. And we know that when he took the water baptism, it was picturing our own baptism of Spirit, which we do picture as well through water. So it would stand to reason that we should conclude that our own spirit baptism, the moment of our faith, would be the moment we should launch our earthly ministry as well, whatever form that takes. We're just as equipped by the Spirit as he was to whatever purposes God has, and we have a mission to serve the Father just as he had. I wonder how many Christians really begin their time of service in that early moment and how many spend a long time figuring out that that's what it's all about. Perhaps some of us are still trying to figure out what it is to serve Christ. Well, don't hesitate to follow his example. It's never too soon to start serving someone in the name of Christ and to make that your purpose in life. So on this day, John testified to his own disciples who were there in the moment that this man, this guy you see walking toward me, he's the one I've been telling you about. He's the Lamb of God. His purpose in telling them this is to direct them to follow Jesus, to turn their attention from being John's disciples and to becoming Jesus' disciples, to literally leave me and go follow him. Now, apparently not everyone takes that advice right away. And so John records a third day, the next day in this week, when Jesus has to make yet another trip back to John at the river. And on this day, this third day, a couple of John's disciples will finally heed John's advice and they'll begin to follow Jesus. Look at verses 35 through 42. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and he said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So here we are the third day in this week. So on this day, John sees Jesus again. Once again, he walks up. Once again, he repeats the declaration. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. I want you to imagine how thrilling it must have been for those who were around John at the water and were among the very first in the world to know who the identity of the Messiah was. I mean, this is a person, the Messiah, who's been promised literally since Adam and woman fell in the garden. 
And all Israel has been taught over the centuries of this coming deliverer. Young girls grew up in ancient Israel dreaming and hoping they would be privileged to be the one selected by God to birth the Messiah. That's how important it was. Religious men in Israel were forever asking each other how they would recognize the Messiah's coming and what would be the signs and dissecting scripture for that answer. And yet on this day, those who had come out in answer to John's call to be baptized in repentance, those at the river were learning for the very first time who the Messiah was. What a thrill to be them in that day. Two of John's disciples were told, leave John and seek to answer the call to follow Jesus. And they began walking behind him. It's kind of a funny scene if you think about it. Jesus wanders off. These two guys start following at a distance like they're trailing him. I wonder when he looked back a couple times if they went. And then he starts walking again and they start following again. They're intimidated. Maybe they don't know what to say. Finally, Jesus just turns on him and says, what do you want? Why are you following me? And immediately they call him teacher, which John helpfully translates for the Gentile audience. Like we said, he was going to do a lot. And when they call him rabbi or teacher, they're acknowledging that he has a, a certain degree of spiritual authority in their lives or could have it. They're suggesting they may want to follow him as a disciple, but they're only willing to ask him, where are you staying? Which simply means we just want to kind of hang out with you for a little while, see what you're all about. They are committing at this point to being his disciple. Not yet, but they're curious. They want to know more. And at this point, all this tells us is they don't really understand what John the Baptist has said concerning who Jesus is. They may know what the word Messiah means. That's a word that's common in Jewish vocabulary, but they don't understand what a Messiah is. Messiah means the anointed one in Hebrew. Israel saw any prophet, any king as anointed by God. So to call someone the anointed one doesn't necessarily suggest they're any different than an ordinary man. It just suggests they are going to do more than the average man does. And so the Messiah had that sense in the way the Jews had come to understand it. Only by spiritual revelation from God could someone come to understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. That's a, a leap too far for human understanding. That requires the revelation of God by the Spirit. And these men haven't come there yet. So in answer to the question, Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, come and you will see. Now, in the context of this narrative, Jesus is simply saying, follow me to where I'm going to stay and you'll get the answer to your question. But Jesus's choice of words here are very revealing. They're very powerful. He says anyone who wants to know Jesus must come to him. In other words, we have to enter his house, so to speak. And then by coming to him, we will see. We will have spiritual life and spiritual insight, spiritual knowledge. This is the offer Jesus makes to these men, though they don't obviously appreciate the meaning of what he's asking. John identifies these two men. He says one of them is Andrew, and we don't know who the other man was. Some have speculated it might have been John himself, John the writer, but we don't know. Andrew eventually becomes one of the 12 disciples who are designated as apostles. And his first response to meeting Jesus, we're told, is to go tell his brother, Peter, to come see this Messiah that he's found. What a wonderful first response to meeting the Messiah. And what an example, really, of what we should do. At the first exposure to the Messiah, your next thought is, who can I introduce to this Messiah? And so Andrew goes and finds his brother. Now, at Peter's first meeting with Jesus, Jesus immediately identifies him by name. He says, you're Simon. And he gives his ancestry. He knows his father. That would suggest that Jesus has never been told these things in advance. He's using this for some shock value to impress upon Peter that he has some knowledge that should cause Peter to think twice of who he is. And I'm guessing at this point, Peter's a little surprised when Jesus has all this information. And then he goes the next step before he even hears Peter say anything. And he says, I'm going to change your name. 
Simon probably comes from the Jewish name Simeon, which is one of the original 12 names from the sons of Israel. And he says, nope, now your name is not going to be Simon anymore. It's going to be Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock. And the word for rock in Greek is Petrus. Petrus means rock in Greek. Cephas means rock in Aramaic. So it's Peter. Now, if you think back to who Simeon was in the Old Testament, Simeon was that son of Jacob who acted rashly and impulsively at times. And Peter, as you may remember from other Gospels, shows a healthy streak of Simeon in that respect at times in his own life. But later, Peter is the man who founded the early church in Jerusalem in the face of fierce opposition, stood up to kings, stood up to persecution, truly a rock upon whose ministry the early church began. So it's interesting that he took a name that had a certain connotation for who he was and gave him a name for who he would become long before he reached that point. And as we end chapter one, we enter the fourth day of this opening week in Jesus's public ministry. Let's just go a little further to put a bigger story together here. Verses 43 through 51. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, well, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Well, you'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So this is the day after meeting Andrew and Peter. This is the fourth day. Now, in this fourth day, Andrew decides to travel back to his home in the Galilee. Now, your Bible might have the word he in verse 43 capitalized, suggesting that it was Jesus who had decided to go to Bethesda. There is no capitalization in the original Greek text. That's an interpreter's decision to capitalize. The interpreter concluded that it was Jesus speaking, but that's not necessarily found in the text itself. How do we get to know who is really speaking here? Well, notice in verse 41, Andrew, when he brings his brother Simon to meet Jesus, John, the writer, specifically says he first brought his own brother, Simon, to Jesus, suggesting, of course, that Andrew brings ultimately two people before all is said and done. The first being Simon, who was nearby in the same region of Judea where they were baptizing. And that was Simon. So who would be the second then? The second appears to be Philip, his friend who's in his hometown back in the Galilee. Philip lives in Andrew's hometown, we're told. So in order for Andrew to introduce Philip to Jesus, he's going to have to get Jesus to Philip. That is, he has to bring Jesus to him. This is an interesting thought when you consider his options. His options would have been to go by himself up to the Galilee, find Philip and say, would you travel down to where the John the Baptist is baptizing? And there's a guy down there I want you to meet named Jesus. He's the Messiah. On a map, this distance we're talking about is somewhere between 20 and 30 miles. So it took most of that day to travel if you were to walk that distance. So Given the two options, Andrew decides the best option is to drag Jesus with him as opposed to trying to convince Philip to make the walk down. What's the most efficient solution for introducing people to Christ? To take Christ to them or to bring them to your church on Sunday? Seems the pattern should be to take Jesus with you. 
Speak to them where they are. Introduce them to the Messiah at the point you find them. Don't expect them to make the walk for something they have no interest in before they know about it. Ministry is about who you are, where you are. It's not about a place inside of certain four walls on a certain day of the week. Once again, in that encounter, Jesus now speaking to Philip up in the Galilee. What does Jesus tell Philip? He tells Philip to follow him. Now, interestingly, no one who is following Jesus at this point, none of the little gaggle that has surrounded Jesus at this point, has ever found Jesus of their own accord. Everyone has met Jesus because someone else introduced them to Jesus. And that chain of introduction goes back to John the Baptist, who introduced Jesus to the first person, just as his ministry was intended. So truly, you can say everyone has found Jesus because of John the Baptist. John introduced Andrew. Andrew introduced Simon. Andrew has introduced Philip. So no one has found Jesus on their own. And that pattern repeats here again when Philip introduces Nathaniel to Jesus. Philip finds Nathaniel, and when he does, he announces Jesus by his earthly affiliation. And then he adds, this is the one that God's word has been talking about from the beginning. And it's unclear to us how these men have become so convinced so quickly that this lowly man from Nazareth is, in fact, the Messiah. But they all seem to get it right from the start. And as we said, they aren't sure what Messiah means yet. But they do understand he is the one that's been promised throughout all of history in the scriptures. And there is such a great excitement in their life over this discovery and the need to share it with others. And that all follows immediately. For example, what would it say that Andrew was willing to walk 20 to 30 miles the very next day to make sure that Jesus is introduced to one of his friends? What kind of urgency does that suggest? What kind of interest? How far are we willing to go to do the same? Nathaniel's response is decidedly less enthusiastic. And he utters really one of the most memorable lines in all the Gospels, a line he probably regretted later, I'm suspecting. He asks, could anything good come out of Nazareth? He's reacting to the ridiculous thought that God would raise up someone as important as the Messiah from such an insignificant place. His, his point isn't so much to discredit Nazareth, although I'm sure there was a certain degree of bad reputation that went with it. His point is to say it makes no sense that someone so important would come to light in such a manner. We would expect him to be in Jerusalem. We would expect him to come with a horse and a chariot, not in this way. But that also reminds us of how lowly Jesus' beginnings were. The father chose to give his son a human identity that would add absolutely nothing whatsoever to his appeal, to his credibility. If anything, his earthly origins detracted from his appeal and his credibility, at least in a human sense. And that was in keeping with God's purpose in bringing salvation by faith and not by sight. As the Bible says, he uses the foolish things to shame the wise. And it annoys me to no end when Hollywood chooses to make movies with Jesus that looks like a rock star or a Calvin Klein model with an accent because those things are so counter to what Scripture says we should have been looking for. If you really wanted to make an accurate movie of Jesus' life, you'd have to cast some guy who's a lot shorter than you think he should be and far less attractive. So that as you saw someone say, that's the Messiah, part of you in believing what you heard was excited and another part of you in seeing what you saw was thinking, oh, I was looking for something a lot different than that. Just not what I expected. That's the wisdom of God so that he would shame us for thinking that what we believe in and what we care about, what we hold to be valuable is what he holds to be valuable because our our emotions and our desires and our hearts lie to us about all that stuff. What you really want is normally not what God really wants. And if it is what he wants, it's only because you happen to luck into his will in a moment or you were being led by the spirit. Because if it's a natural feeling, it's going to be wrong. And the natural inclination is to follow a Saul, not a David. You know, the one that looks the part. And God knew that, so he wanted to show us how wrong our eyes can be. And he brought us the Messiah in a form that didn't convince us. But by power, 
by words of authority, he showed us. Once again, I want you to take note of Philip's response to Nathaniel's tepid response. Philip just says, come and see. Here again, you notice this, these words are so consistent. This is not an accident. If we want someone to understand who Jesus is truly, we simply have to extend the opportunity for them to come to Jesus. And if they come, they will see for themselves that what we say is true. But unless and until they make that spiritual trip, there is nothing we can say to convince them. Our offer is for them to come. And that offer is far, far more important than any rational argument we can conceive in an attempt to persuade them concerning the truth. In fact, trying to convince someone that Jesus is the Messiah before they are inclined to come is actually a reversal of the salvation call given in Scripture. It does not say, see Jesus as Lord so that you can come to him. It says, come and so you will see that he is Lord. It's a willingness to humble yourself and submit to the possibility. And in that submission, God shows himself. Each of these men, when they finally came to see Jesus, you don't hear a long argument pursued at that point. You don't see Jesus launch into 20 points. You don't see him open a book and start rationalizing with him. He shows up and says, oh, you're Peter from John's family. You're now Cephas. And he's wowed. That's not explainable in human terms. When Jesus says, I saw you sitting under a fig tree, Nathaniel's ready to just take him and put him on the throne. In Nathaniel's case, he chose to come. Notice Jesus didn't come to Nathaniel. Nathaniel had to come to Jesus. Nathaniel had to make a decision to come to Jesus so that he could come and have that experience of knowing him. And then as the encounter begins, Jesus initiates the conversation. He declares, behold, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The word for deceit in Hebrew, the word deceit is a euphemism for the name of Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob was known as the deceiver. That's what the name Jacob means. It means deceiver. So Jesus essentially said, here comes an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. What he meant is, of course, here's a man who has a true heart. And his decision to come to Jesus is what caused his heart to be set straight. That reminds us of John the Baptist's ministry, right? He was said to be a man who made crooked or made straight paths that were crooked. Crooked hearts being made right. And indeed, John did that for Nathaniel here indirectly through that chain of custody we talked about. His heart had been made straight. Why? Because John the Baptist sent Andrew and Andrew then sent Philip and then Philip then sent Nathaniel. And that's how things get done in the body of Christ. That's how hearts become straight. It's no stretch to say that today, as you introduce someone to Christ, you are extending the ministry of John the Baptist one person further, one generation further, as God has permitted. And after Jesus calls Nathaniel by name, we hear this Nathaniel being taken aback, says, how did you know this? Jesus says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. Now, once again, I want you to notice his words. They're very purposeful here. Now, who called Nathaniel to come? It was Philip. But Jesus says, he says, I saw you sitting under a fig tree before Philip called you. Only now we understand that it was Jesus himself who was the one issuing that call, though through Philip. But it was never a human call. And so it is with us, right? We endeavor to go out and reach others for the sake of the Lord. We may be the ones choosing our words. We may be the ones honing our techniques. And inevitably, we'll be the ones worrying about whether we're doing the right things or not to recruit the most followers. And at the end of it, all the Bible testifies that it's not us doing the calling anyway. Jesus calls through us. And so it suggests that an emphasis on certain methodologies must be tempered by an appreciation that God can work through the mouth of a donkey. So just how much do our methodologies matter in the end? We should move with the spirit. We should freely change our focus. We should move our methods and change them as the Lord directs. We should not be dogmatic. We should understand it's the Lord working through us. And we should only remain firm and set on one thing and one thing only. The gospel is revealed in the word of God. 
Secondly, Jesus mentions a fig tree. That's interesting detail because of its connection to the thought of being called or more specifically to Nathaniel's heart being made right. Remember that a fig leaf was the way that man and woman tried to cover their own nakedness after the fall in the garden. That was their inadequate, insufficient way to salve the wound of sin. The feeling of vulnerability, of jeopardy before God, of a need to be covered for fear that they are in jeopardy should God see their nakedness, which is a way of a body reflecting the inner vulnerability of our spirit. It's the way sin manifests itself in our physical life. The fact that they were vulnerable spiritually for their sin came out in the way of a feeling of nakedness in their body. And so they did the only thing they knew how to do. They took a fig leaf and covered themselves, hoping to stop the feeling, but it didn't, it didn't stop the feeling. It didn't work. And God wasn't pleased with that. Their clothing choice was insufficient from God's point of view. He provided animal skins, which implies that an animal was sacrificed, which implies that atonement was made available in a limited sense through the sacrifice of that animal. The point being that there is an atonement that will salve for that wound, but it's not going to come from man's work. It can only come from God providing a lamb to salve that wound. The lamb of God is standing here with Nathaniel, and he says, I saw you when you were covered only by fig leaves. Now there's no deceit found in you. Why? Because you came and you saw me. And then Jesus offers him this great promise, one that I think is true in, in a sense for every believer. He says, you're going to see many greater things than this. Of course, Jesus is referring to the events that Nathaniel would have witnessed in the years that he spent with Jesus up through the resurrection and afterward. But Jesus is also thinking of the marvelous things. I'm sure that this man and all believers are going to see the day we actually meet Jesus in person. When we're ruling and reigning with him in the kingdom, you're going to see things you've never imagined, the Bible tells us. And we will see the glory of God. So in response to his demonstration of this prophetic knowledge, as I mentioned, Nathaniel exclaims, oh, you're, you're the son of God, you're king of Israel. You know, that's really a strong reaction, even under the circumstances. That, that seems a bit strong, which is why I think Jesus reacted the way he did. Because the Jewish understanding of the Messiah did not include a triune God. That was not part of Jewish theology. And the phrase when he says the son of God, it's literally being uttered, I think, here under the inspiration of the spirit. I don't think Nathaniel would have chosen those words naturally, which makes sense because Jesus just declared that in him there is no deceit. In other words, it would seem to suggest the Lord declared in advance that whatever this guy says is true. God obviously inspiring and directing all of that conversation. And then, of course, Jesus says greater things are coming. And then he says, All disciples will see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, if you're a Bible student, you would recognize this imagery. It's a reference to Jacob's life yet again. You remember that scene in Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob is ticked off his family with the deception he did on dad and his brother's seeking to kill him. And so he has to flee to save his life. And his mom sends him to Uncle Laban to go work for a while. And here he is getting ready to leave the land that his father had never left. Isaac had never left. And he's starting to worry. What am I going to find when I leave? Is God still with me? Is this the beginning of the end for me? And he reaches a point in chapter 28, verse 10, where we see this. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and he put it under his head and he lay down in that place. And he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and of God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and to the north and the south. 
and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So in his dream, you notice this ladder. We call it Jacob's ladder. It was an image given to Jacob in this dream that was intended to reflect God's promise that he would be with Jacob and he would minister to Jacob even in the midst of this time of way from the land and in his trials. And he would do it by means of angels, ministering spirits. And when Jacob gets the message through the dream, he wakes up and he responds, well, surely God is in this place. And yet I didn't even know it. Jacob hadn't realized how close God could be to him in his life on earth, that God was capable and willing to descend from heaven if necessary and reach down into the earth through his angels, through his messengers, to minister to the needs of a man like Jacob even in the midst of his trials. And he was doing this through intercessors. Now, there's a great picture of Christ in that. In fact, Christ himself tells us in John's Gospel that he is the latter, for he changed the dream, if you noticed. He says, you will see angels uh, descending and ascending on the Son of God as opposed to seeing it on a ladder. He substitutes himself for the latter in the dream. Jesus is saying, you're going to see something that Jacob saw, but in his day, he saw it in a limited form. In your day, you're going to see it in the full form. Previously, God revealed himself in that limited form to Israel in the desert. Now I'm revealing myself to you in a full form to you, the Israelites. And like Jacob, Nathaniel declares in so many words, the Lord is here and I didn't know it. Well, that's only the fourth day of the week. But already several disciples have been collected and their awareness is growing that Jesus is the Messiah. And in this first chapter, the identity of Jesus has become John's main theme. In fact, if you went back and counted, he's used no less than 16 different names for Jesus's identity in this opening chapter. The point, of course, in this chapter is to emphasize Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist is not. But John's ministry points us to Jesus as the son of God, as the son of man. Now, we still have three days to finish the week, and they all come in one story. We're going to go to John 2, and we're going to do the story of the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. And this happens in a place called Cana, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, And he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and he said to them, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You notice it begins in verse one on the third day. This is the third day since the fourth day. So that means this is the seventh day of Jesus's public ministry. And it seems appropriate that the first of Jesus's miracles would occur on the seventh day of his earthly ministry. In fact, John 
generally doesn't include specific time references in his gospel. This is a bit unique for John, which would suggest he had reasons to make so clear the timeline of the events in this first week. Remember that we said earlier that John's gospel begins with those clear and obvious references to the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning, he starts Genesis 1, in the beginning. Genesis' first day is light and dark. First of John's gospel is about Jesus was the light and he came into the darkness. So there's this clear emphasis in the beginning from John's point of view to make a parallel for us so that we'll start to think more about the beginning of creation. And in that way, come to understand Jesus was the creator. And if you think back to that first chapter of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, you will also find that that chapter is structured as a series of days, six days to be exact. And the start of chapter two of Genesis is day seven. And here we are once again at the beginning of John's second chapter on day seven of Jesus's earthly ministry. Now, there may be no more significance than simply the fact that he wants to emphasize this this same connection again, that Jesus is the creator and he's intentionally mirrored his account to reflect that. But it is interesting that on the seventh day, now we get to Jesus's first miracle. And this occasion is of a wedding in Cana. Cana is a very small town in the Galilee where Jesus has been staying. It's still there today. Jesus and his five disciples are with him. Those are the only men he's collected so far, just five. And they're invited, we're told, as guests to the wedding, as is Jesus's mother. It must be that that wedding involved a close family connection between Jesus's family and the wedding party, because otherwise we wouldn't understand why they would have been invited. That would also explain why Jesus's mother gets herself so involved in trying to rescue the host from his bad situation with the wine running out because maybe she feels a family connection and this shame would reflect on her as well. But in any case, we're told in verse three, the wine runs out. That is a bit surprising because wine drinking was the highlight of a wedding feast, along with the food. Pretty much it still is today. Perhaps more people attended than the host expected, or perhaps the host just did a poor job of estimating the need. But in any case, the party's about to become a real disaster. And not only is it just a social disgrace to fail to care for your guests in this way, but there were financial implications to this problem in the time of this story. In that culture, in Jewish culture in this day, if you invited someone to a party or to a dinner, you were legally obligated to care for them properly. And if you didn't, you would be expected to compensate them for it. They could take a sheep or something and leave. So you had a significant issue on hand if you had a large party and no wine. You were about to lose your herd. I mean, literally. So Mary turns to her son and she simply says, they have no wine. Now, when a mother says something like that to her son, that's not just idle chit-chat. No, she's expecting her son to recognize the seriousness of the problem, obviously, and to do something to rectify it. That's her expectation. That raises a question. The question you ask yourself at this point is, what exactly did she think Jesus was going to do? What was her expectation from her son? John says in verse 11 that this miracle was the beginning of the signs Jesus performed. It it seemed to suggest this is his very first miracle ever. And since Jesus only received the Holy Spirit a week earlier, then it would stand to reason he wasn't in the habit of making wine miraculously in past days because he lacked the power of the Spirit to even do so. Remember what we said earlier, no one knew he was the Messiah. I mean, you can't imagine too many scenarios in which he could have done anything miraculous whatsoever without that having triggered some suspicions or some conversation. I mean, there's just no way about it. He was an ordinary person doing nothing out of the ordinary until now. So that begs that question I raised a minute ago. What did Mary think he was going to do? Did Mary think he's going to perform a miracle in this particular moment? Is this the moment she thinks it's going to start something she's presumably never seen before? It's hard to imagine she expected anything other 
than a miracle when you consider their circumstances. Jesus had no significant financial resources. He wasn't a winemaker. And even if he did have the resources, where's he going to procure a bunch of wine at the last minute? He's the last person you would turn to under these circumstances and expect to have a solution for the lack of wine at a party. Furthermore, in verse 5, even after he tells her what he says, Mary all but anticipates that he's going to do something miraculous because she has to turn to the servants and say, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That would seem to be an unnecessary thing to say to a servant. That's what they're there for. They do what they're told. But you do say that, on the other hand, if you expect Jesus to do something quite extraordinary and you're preparing the servants for something unusual. You don't want them to be shocked. You want them to just go with it, whatever it is. That would seem to suggest she knew something special was going to happen. And as I look at the entire scene and I conclude that she expected a miracle, I have to wonder what was going on in her head to bring her to that conclusion. I mean, we know she knows Jesus is the Messiah. She knows his true identity from the time of his conception. And then, of course, at the birth, she saw the angels and she saw everything else. She understands that. And he probably never threw a temper tantrum in his terrible twos. And he probably didn't have terrible twos. He probably had wonderful twos. That's probably what Jesus had. And he was probably an ideal teenager. She now probably knows he's been baptized by John. Furthermore, she sees he's now got disciples in tow. That's new. Up till now, he has been walking around calling himself a rabbi and collecting people. So it would all kind of add up for her that we've turned a corner. You've begun something. It's time. And so she had every reason to believe that his earthly ministry now was underway and that would give way to demonstrations of power and authority in keeping with his divine nature. The problem is she decides she wants it to start right now. And she's doing what a typically proud mother would do, what a Jewish mother would do, according to the stereotype, you know, loving and concerned for her son and thinks the world of him and thinks he can do anything. And in this case, he can. And on top of all that, you could imagine she might want to advance the career of her son a little bit here, give him a little kickstart, help him get started in his new business as Messiah. So she asked Jesus, just perform a little miracle here. This will help. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for them. It's a win, win, win. I don't know if she understood that Jesus was going to take the water and turn it into wine. I don't think she really had a clue how it was going to happen, but she's confident it's going to happen somehow. That, that's the tenor. That's the tone. It seems to be everything about the, the storyline. And that's where she goes. And that's such an interesting irony. Mary's the only one, perhaps, who truly knows who her son is. She knows his origins. She knows his identity. She knows his power and authority. She knows his destiny. These are things no one else, it would appear, knows yet. But she's the one trying to misuse that authority and that power. Now, I realize she had good intentions, and we don't want to take anything away from that. And I think she thinks she's doing the right thing. She assumes it's Jesus' desire, like it is hers, to save the host's reputation at this party. She thinks, who wouldn't want to do this good thing? It must be in keeping with what righteousness would expect. But in reality, she's looking at Jesus as if he's a genie in a bottle. She wants to rub the bottle, so to speak, and make a request. And then Jesus just pops to it and responds. More than anyone else, she should have been sensitive to approaching Jesus in a manner consistent with his divinity. Instead, she treats him more dismissively. Actually, after he raises an objection, she she gives him no response whatsoever. Now, before we come down too hard on Mary, you know, we do exactly the same thing. We approach Jesus forgetting he is Lord of the universe. We bring him our concerns, which we are supposed to do, but we expect him to respond like a genie to do our bidding. And that's not how we approach Jesus. 
I want you to consider his response to his mother. Look in verse four again. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. He asked his mother, what does the lack of wine have to do with Mary and Jesus? In the words that he speaks here, this is actually a Jewish idiom. And it's kind of hard to translate into English. The best I think you get to is your concerns are not my concerns. Your concerns are not my concerns. The problem of this wedding party has nothing to do with my earthly ministry. I didn't voluntarily leave the right hand of the father, lowering myself to take the form of man so that I could cater weddings. This isn't my ministry. The Holy Spirit didn't come upon me and grant me power to perform miracles so that I could accommodate everyday needs and requests. I came to earth and I'm going to display my power only, only so that I can validate my identity as Messiah. The miracles were not the end. The miracles were a means to an end. And that end is to testify to the truth of who I am. He showed signs and wonders in all kinds of ways, but he did it always to prove a message that he had delivered in conjunction with those miracles. But here you find Mary wanting the miracle to be divorced from any kind of message whatsoever because her only concern was for the host's reputation, not for Jesus's glory. And that's why Jesus asks her, what does this have to do with us? Or in a more literal translation, your concerns are not my concerns. Mary's purpose was not in keeping with the father's purpose in Jesus's earthly ministry. And if your purpose is not in keeping with the father's purpose, friends, that's the definition of sin. And we do this as well. I think more often than we realize. We declare that what we want is what God wants. We assume that just because we think it's good, well, then certainly God must want it too. But we forget God's definition and understanding of what is good is not the same as ours. In fact, oftentimes it's exactly the opposite. And look at how Jesus ends his comments. He says, my time has not yet come. What he's reminding Mary is that the timing for his miracles is not according to human desires, according to the father's will. So in this moment, Mary is acting according to her own will, not according to the father's will. And Jesus, in displaying his divinity to her, rebukes her, calls out her sin. In other words, as God in that moment He speaks to her concerning her sin. He's acting as her judge, convicting her for having wrong motives and making her request. Now, the more interesting part of the story for me is what comes next. What does Jesus do? That, I think, is the more interesting. That's probably the most interesting aspect of the story. And in fact, it's the most important aspect of the story. He does the miracle anyway. And we could talk at length about the miracle. It's such a fascinating thing. What was in the mind of the servants? And did they know they were pulling wine out when they pulled it out? Did they think the guy who drank it was going to spit it out? Were they surprised when he discovered it was wine? That's not the important part. The important part is why did Jesus do it if he just told Mary she was wrong to want it? Well, making water into wine is not a sin. Not in itself. Jesus didn't sin when he made that miracle happen. He did it discreetly. He does it without drawing any attention to himself. That's another important detail that tells us that what Mary wanted was wrong. Because, again, miracles were always done to draw attention to his message. He had no message for this place. It's not his time yet. So he made the miracle happen in a discreet way so that he was not doing it counter to the purpose of the father. It was not done in such a way as to draw attention to himself before the time. No one really knew what happened. In fact, as the servants serve the water, the head waiter credits the bridegroom, not Jesus. Ironically, he was speaking prophetically and didn't know it. Jesus did not violate the Father's will in performing the miracle because he did not use it to publicize his earthly ministry prematurely. Nevertheless, the humanity of Jesus had also the responsibility not to sin. And the sin of this moment would have been to dishonor his mother. So 
The humanity of Christ respected his mother and complied with her request, even as the divinity of Christ rebuked her and then obeyed the father by not announcing himself too quickly. John, in his relating of this story, shows us both sides of Jesus at work there in perfection, acting as God and man in one succinct story. And as it ends, we see Jesus' creative work, and it is so superior that his product is the best wine possible. I'd like to believe that when Jesus promises that you and I will dine with him in the kingdom and that he will share wine with us in that moment, I'd like to think, in fact, I'm going to think that he will be serving us that wine. All right, let's go to Lord in prayer and then uh, questions if you have any. Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminders that it's in your will that the work of the gospel will be done. And by your call, by your power, and yet, Father, you ask us to be your arms and, and feet, those who would go out and speak and call others to come and see and to do so, Father, with an urgency and a willingness to go anywhere if we need to. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that it is to serve you in that way. And, Father, for those in here who may have heard, maybe for the first time, the call of Christ, and but have never come and seen for themselves, perhaps today, Father, through the word, you've shown them yourself in a new way, and they now understand that you are who you say you are. Son of God, Messiah in the flesh. I pray, Father, you would turn their hearts and they would come to you as all those in the gospel story that we read tonight did. Let us come back again here, Father, in future weeks and continue in our study as you will permit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.